I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mirror Framework, M-E-E-R Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double feature. First up, Aaron Lake-Smith, a freelance journalist, joins us to discuss an article he wrote in November 2018 for Harper's Magazine that seems especially relevant right now in light of the crisis in Ukraine. That article was entitled... Light in the Donbass Window. It detailed the Hall of Mirrors world of the republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, which have become central to Putin's narrative for invading Ukraine. Later on in the show, we'll hear from Mickey Huff of Project Censored to discuss the Project Censored book, State of the Free Press 2022. But first, Aaron Lake-Smith on the Hall of Mirrors world of the Donbass. Welcome to Parallax Views. Aaron Lake-Smith, author of the November 21st, 2018 article, that uh, appears to be very relevant right now uh, for Harper's Magazine entitled Light in the Donbass Window Among the Quote-Unquote Anti-Imperialist Foreign Volunteers in East Ukraine. How are you doing? Doing good. How about yourself? Very good. Very good. Um, crazy times we're all living in right now. But uh, this special feature that you wrote in 2018 uh, was about the Donbass. So it seems very relevant right now. Uh, maybe give my listeners an overview of what the issue is uh, in the Donbass region and uh, why it's relevant to what's happening in Ukraine now if they've been uh, living under a rock. Right. Okay. Well, the Donbass uh, is a breakaway territory that's um, 
basically been Russia controlled since 2014. Uh, you know, there's local people, there's former FSB colonels, there's adventurers, people from Transnistria, from the Chechen wars. Um, and it was kind of this uh, frozen territory that was the uh, stepping stone for this current conflict we're seeing right now. So that was uh, for the last eight years, uh, Putin's kind of let them fight it out on their own with a lot of humanitarian support and some mil military advisors and some weaponry. And um, what we recently had was a recognition that the Donbass is a legitimate place um, rather than being this kind of black box where it was being controlled by local people who were also involved in the FSB. And so it's a- uh, And, and it know, was Putin that recognized them right before the, the war broke out. Yeah. Yeah, they asked for recognition and Putin took it to the, uh, to the Duma and they decided to recognize these territories, which was just basically a, it's fait accompli. It's already been uh, eight years of Russian involvement in this area. So it was nothing actually new, but it was to- to kind of say, you know, we legitimate this, these these places was a was a big deal, and that was kind of the start to this current uh, war situation we have now. And these two republics, they're known as uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, right? Right. Yeah, Donetsk and Luhansk. These are historical coal mining territories. These were kind of Soviet uh, hero areas. They were occupied by the Germans and Italians, and then they were, were repelled out of those areas. This was like where Stakhanov and the shock worker movement was born um, in the 30s. So these were really important uh, areas, both resource-wise and kind of in the mythology of the Soviet Union. Um, the people there, Russian-speaking, uh, when I was there in 2018, they they desperately wanted Putin's help. They felt uh, abandoned. They felt kind of like they were being uh, excluded from the global community, pretty much unrecognized except for other breakaway territories that Russia has been controlling, like South Ossetia and Abkhazia and uh, Transnistria, recognized them as legitimate. But they, uh, they wanted to be part of Russia. And uh, I wrote about... Uh, you know, we had this whole thing with Syria with there was Rojava and um, you kind of had that conflict was drawing international volunteers in a very public, big way. It was getting a lot of attention, lots of news articles and media interest. And the same thing was happening in these areas. They were getting foreign volunteers, but it was kind of flying under the radar because these were like more uh, just a most icy catena of ideology like it was not well you i just to not to interrupt but i understand it that you uh, originally had a different title uh for this article that you wanted to call it uh tanky land right yeah i wanted to call it tanky land and the editor uh put the kind of more benign title it has right now but i but it was basically this if rojava was attracting these kind of verso book reading insurrectionary communist or anarchist this was attracting international tankies and Russian uh, nationalists. So that was kind of the two groups that were going there. And I got on a junket. It was called the International Anti-Fascist Conference. And it was just a junket of foreign supporters to go to Donetsk and Luhansk and show our support. And I, I went as a journalist, obviously. And uh, the other people were 
activists. They were anti-NATO activists. They were Russian nationalists. They were tankies. I mean, you had people from all over. You had Americans, Germans, Spaniards, Italians, kind of a just a melange of anti-NATO, pro-Russian, RT people with uh, the ideologies were all over the place. People were hardline, old Stalinist communists. People were anti And that, that would be the more, not, not to interrupt you, but the, would that hardline sort of Stalinist side be the, the more tanky side of things? Or Because I, I have listeners that may not be familiar with the term tanky. Yeah, I mean, a tanky, it, it's more of a, it's a, it's a been for the last five years growing community of kind of anti-American, pro-Chinese, pro-Russian, you know, youth movement where when I was growing up, the thing to be was like an anarchist, whatever, you're anti-globalization. I think today a lot of young people online are into becoming tankies, which is basically it's a more Stalinist kind of posturing towards um towards uh you know this geopolitical scenario kind of leaning always intuitively towards the chinese and the russians so and anything to stop america essentially right right basically so it's just intrinsically anti-american and could you also talk about these other elements you mentioned i know there's this element known as the uh nazbols or the national bolsheviks and and that has a lot of different meanings i think based on who you talk to uh so for instance there's like the sort of story of Edward Limonov, and then there's these people that are calling themselves Nazbuls online now. So it's it's a very confusing term in some ways. Yeah, you know, the people on the junket were by and large anti-NATO tankies from Western country, European countries in America, who had what all the reasons to be going there to support Donetsk and Luhansk. I mean, it was a kind of humanitarian thing and also just to show the people there hey, you have friends, which, of course, people there really appreciated um, the attention and the international recognition. They can kind of take all the friends they can get. These were the friends they got. And then also, of course, you know, in this war, you have um, Russian nationalists. You know, I guess you would call it Nazbols, you know, National Bolsheviks, which was, as you said, it was kind of a party uh, uh, started by Edward Lomonov. Uh, Prilepin, all these people who it's a kind of a Eurasianist uh, ideology that has morphed from the original. It kind of started as like this performance art punk thing, and it's morphed into a an actual ideology of, you know, taking back the uh, the former Soviet territories. And there were people down there that were that were Russian nationalists who had gone down to fight him at one guy, Anton Gokharov. He was um this super like action figure kind of like Russian action figure. He took lots of photos of himself in the outfit and he had gotten like three degrees at different universities, lived in Moscow and came down to the territories to kind of build his political career. Just like, you know, an American, like whatever, who someone who wants to be president would go to war to, to kind of like pad their resume. He was kind of seemed like he was kind of doing that. He was a Eurasianist. He knew Dugan, knew Dugan's daughter you know, he was, I don't know if you could call him a Nazbol, but he was a patriotic Russian nationalist. And there's a crossover into this kind of Eurasian ideology or whatever. Nazbol's just like, it doesn't really mean anything exactly, but it has a vibe. There's kind of a, a feeling. So it's interesting. You start this article out by talking 
about the state of the U.S. in 2018, uh, where you had, you know, the sort of, as you put it, schizo fantasies uh, like Pizzagate, false flag operations, crisis actors, George Soros' puppet master, and even some dark things like uh, Holocaust denialism uh, really gaining traction on the right. And then on the other end, you had uh, liberals who seem to have been driven insane by uh, Donald Trump in embracing uh, some really out there conspiracy theories um, on their end as well. Uh, why do you start the article out talking about the sort of U.S. paranoid style? Uh, and then how did you connect that to what was happening in these two republics? Yeah, I mean, it feels really dated now, um, but they were it was attracting a demographic of people who um I mean, you could just say it's anti-globalist. The territory was like off of the global economy, completely off the beaten path. And you had kind of people from the, you know, hard left, the American and German tankies. And you had people that I met, like Finnish people who were more kind of libertarian, anti-globalist, you know, and everyone was welcome. There were disputes within the territories, the, especially the foreign volunteers about ideology, because you're basically bringing the far left and the far right together, making them live together in this war zone. And um, people, it, I mean, it was a, uh, people there were there kind of, they just like, were like flotsam that just drifted in there for a variety of reasons. The stories I heard of why people came and what drew them were, um, I, I, a lot of kind of like red pill. I mean, not, not like red, like they, they woke up to reality. They woke up to something and they felt the need to come to this place kind of off the beaten path and not red pill and like, Oh, they became right wing, but red pills and they had an awakening. Um, and they, they had to go to this anti-globalist war zone. Basically that's what drew them there. So it sounds like a, a lot of uh, sort of conspiracy minded folks ended up um, in, in this uh, sort of mission, right? It, it drew in a wide crowd. Yeah, I mean, you had RT America people, you had uh, a lot of Germans and Italians, which I would, you know, kind of anti-NATO German Italians, which, you know, you could psychoanalyze and say this area was invaded by the Germans and Italians. And some of these people had personal stories of their grandparents had invaded this area. So, there was maybe something about like guilt, kind of the same guilt complex Germans have towards Israel. Uh, they were coming there and just supporting this territory, you know, fuck Ukraine, Ukraine's all fascists, all Nazis. We're here with the uh, with the liberated areas of Donetsk and Luhansk. We're doing communism, basically. And um, you had Finnish were there, people. Were there also, not to interrupt you, but were there also sort of, um, you know, in the U.S. we have these elements that are always like, oh, Soros and the Jews, were there anti-Semitic elements there as well? Yeah, I didn't like, you know, there was talk about Soros, but I don't think it was about, I didn't hear anything against Jewish people. It was, you know, there was kind of this anti-Zionist thing, which is all over the place in the European left. So it was hard for me to kind of distinguish what was happening. But yeah, there was talk about Soros and uh just people with a just a mix of ideologies um, there for all their own different reasons. A lot of personal reasons, though. A lot of I mean, I, I think of this Finnish guy I met, really nice young Finnish guy who had like an 80,000 euro a year job in Helsinki. He was 
doing what his dad wanted him to do, had a girlfriend, bought nice clothes. And a uh, guy he knew ended up, he said, got institutionalized for his anti-Russian or for his pro-Russian views, ended up in a mental institution. So that like kind of led this guy Yarmo on a uh, kind of, it woke him up. He went to Russia and he kind of ended up in Donetsk working as like an information warrior with the other friends there, stayed there, loved it, was like, yeah, this, I'm making my stand. He said he shot a gun at a Ukrainian troop it, yeah, on the front line. So um, people uh, had their, their reasons. And a lot of it, a lot of people said, oh, it's anti-war. We're doing what well, our biggest goal is to prevent a war between Russia and the West, which is when I think back to the things people said to me, I mean, it was very prescient, like people's, both the leadership of, uh, I'm, you know, went to this big anti-fascist conference with the leader of uh, Luhansk People's Republic, Igor Planitsky. And uh, he and some of the other information warriors were talking about, there won't be any third Minsk agreement. We're going to have tanks in Kiev. We'll destroy them to the moon. You know, we're going to end up at war with the uh, with NATO countries. I mean, they were talking about this in 2018. They had apparently, I mean, I don't think they had privileged information or anything, but they uh, seemed to have an idea of where things were going to go. They turned out to be right. Everyone, myself included, it was like, oh, nothing's going to happen. It'll just kind of be this frozen conflict. Uh, turned out to be wrong. So, so then you also mentioned in the article sort of Russian information war and a lot of people being caught in the middle of this. Uh, you, you talk about the sort of uh, foreign volunteers viewing uh, Crimea and breakaway East Ukraine as a golden opportunity to establish a buffer zone against the hated NATO. Uh, but then you say that most of the homegrown independent local leaders uh, at the time had been murdered and quietly replaced by Moscow compliant functionaries. Uh, could you speak a little bit to that and what was going on with uh, Russia and some of the talking points that came up? Um, I know there was a longtime leader of the DPR uh, that was murdered um, months before you got there. Yeah, I mean, this is such a long and complex story, but it's um, after Maidan in 2014 um, and after Crimea, the fighting spread to these eastern areas. It started out as like protests, kind of a civil war situation. And you had this figure emerge, uh, Igor, Igor uh, Girkin. He goes by Strelkov. He was a retired uh, FSB colonel. You know, he calls himself like a patriotic, traditionalist, neurotic, moderate socialist, just kind of a melange of ideologies. So you had um, him and other kind of retired Russians who had fought in Transnistria in the 90s, who had fought in Chechnya, kind of came in and helped establish DPR and LPR. And then once this war actually got going, you had all these local um, kind of charismatic figures pop up who were actually from the area. You had uh, Mozgovoy, Givi, Motorola. They have, these are kind of like local warlords who were- And, and I believe the one war. that you talk about that was murdered was uh, Alexander Zakharenko? Zakharenko, yeah. He was actually the political leader. All these other people were were just like, uh, basically like commanders. Um, but Zakharenko, yeah, got car bombed. But he was just like the most recent in a long line of uh, charismatic locals who are beloved and their murders are unsolved. The official um, 
the official explanation for most of these was neo-Nazi Ukrainians. But when you start to look into it, um, these some of the patriotic people from the area who were more socialistic, you might say, who actually had politics that went beyond Russian nationalism, they ended up dead too, killed in their apartments, car bombs, et cetera. And there are a lot of still like unanswered questions of what happened to these local leaders. It's kind of, you kind of get the feeling like the curators, the Russian curators were like shuffling a playlist and kind of seeing who they liked and didn't like. And there were different people who were needed at different times. And a lot of these local heroes were for kind of like permanent war with Ukraine. So that was a problem in the political settlement of this issue, this war. So, so it sounds like on one end you had, uh, so for, for instance, uh, with this uh, Alexander Zarchenenko, um, and my apologies for botching names here, but uh, it, it sounds like, for instance, uh, when he's killed by this bomb in a Donetsk separatist cafe, uh, Russia sort of says, oh, it was these mysterious Ukrainian saboteurs and then you have Ukraine on the other end saying uh, he was offed by his Russian minders um, and even others saying it was a mafia style rebel on rebel hit over money and resources. Right. It, it sounds like this is just a, uh, you know, it's it's like something out of a spy versus spy movie. For sure. For sure. Yeah, because you got it exactly right. Where th for every one of these killings, and there was a lot, I mean, you had, like I said, I don't. I don't even know if I need the Mozgovoy, Batman, Givy, Motorola. They had all these kind of names, combat names, all the same type of car bomb or killed in their apartment and the same fight over every single one of them. Oh, it was these Ukrainian saboteurs. No, it was the Russian minders. No, it was their jealous, um, their jealous competitors within the DPR and LPR leadership that it was kind of this warlord on warlord hit. And, uh, a lot of it's just still very murky and uh, extremely confusing and not and we, really We don't have discussed. a smoking gun, right? That, I mean, when you wrote this, you said there's not really a smoking gun proving that the Kremlin, uh, like, quote unquote, activated East Ukraine. No, I mean, yeah, it's, I think it start. I mean, I personally think it started out as like a uh, protest movement and kind of a civil war. And then I do think people stepped in who had more experience like like Strelkov and uh, Gubarev. These are people with, they had like three decades experience doing these separatist conflicts. They had Transnistria, they did Chechnya. I, they kind of got involved and maybe they shepherded things along. So I think it's pretty much open. It's hard to say who was, who was pushing the cart and who was pulling the cart, but there were, of course, local people um, had real feelings. It wasn't, you know, the Ukrainians would say DPR and LPR uh, are all like Russian agents, basically. Basically, everyone there is like basically a Russian. But these were Ukrainian people. These are kind of people from a, uh, a, a troubled area, and they had pro-Russian feelings, and they acted on them as well. Could you, could you speak to your conversations with uh, those people in the area and and what their feelings were because I don't there's so little coverage of this whole uh, you know conflict uh, even when we're talking about what is happening in Ukraine now I mean this specific aspect there's so little coverage and it's hard to know what these people in this region are thinking or feeling yeah I heard all sorts of views and all sorts of hopes and dreams but I would say um there was, um, you know, 
I met a university educated guy who wanted to get ahead in his career. He hoped that it would just become a frozen conflict like Transnistria and peace would come and he would, he could study without hearing bombs. Um, I met an old teacher who said, uh, Putin is just waiting. Putin, Putin will, has invested all this money in us, all this time, all the military, eventually he'll take us. He's just biding his time. You heard, I mean, Overall, the people that were from there were, it was, uh, they were very reasonable and had nuanced views of their situation. And the tanky foreign volunteers obviously were more ideological and came for ideological reasons. But as I said before, it's kind of like these people in Donbass are kind of internationally friendless people and they're kind of cut off from everything. So if tankies want to support them, they were like, yeah, fine, we'll take, we want attention we need foreign attention here so they were happy for it and uh and most people i talked to um believed uh in the the whole ukrainian nazi thing where all the ukrainians are not they're all neo-nazis the whole deal the whole deal so you know even though they had connections on the other side of the border and had family they still were like basically felt they want to kill us and yeah i don't, I don't know if i could blame them for feeling that way, but they were more people that were from there were nuanced and they were trying to make the best of a bad situation. Did some of them have, what were their feelings on Putin? It sounds like some of them were uh, thinking Putin will save us. Uh, were there any voices that weren't necessarily huge Putin fans or that had issues with Russia or were maybe more in favor of like um, viewing themselves as, as from a, a sort of Soviet past rather than Putin's Russia or... Yeah, I mean, I met, I, I sat down with a, a moderate kind of social Democrat guy named Yuri Durkinov, and he was completely reasonable, just like a university professor trying to make sense of all of it kind of trapped in the middle. But he was kind of the one lone kind of moderate left voice that I met who was from there. Uh, everyone else, you know, I think it's kind of like be believing in, you know, Trump, where people that supported Trump were like, oh, you know, they kind of project so much onto him. I felt like people were projecting all these tactics onto Putin. And uh, in a way, maybe they turned out to be right because two years later, three years, well, however many years later, four years later, Putin did come and save them. But um, th there was a lot of he's biding his time. He can't do it right now. He's got a weird relationship with Trump. It's tough. They can't really acknowledge us. But in the past years, there's been more and more um, uh, initiatives to get Russian visas for people there, kind of get them out of this area and get them in a better economic situation. So more integration. At one point, you say that this is a conflict that has turned into or mutated into uh, a, a proxy conflict between NATO and Russia. What, what sort of gave you the hints that that was what was going on? Wow. Um, yeah, it just seemed like... Uh, uh, the vitriol and the information war on both sides was so extreme. I mean, Ukraine has passed pretty serious laws uh, punishing people who, uh, you know, with pro-Russian sentiments, people who go to these territories, you know, any occupied territory. Uh, Ukraine has like a, um, they had like kind of a, a pro-Russian hit list that they have called Miro Varets. Um, 
where they've put anyone who's on RT or any, you know, any kind of these tanky people, put them on the list. They're kind of unwelcome. So it seemed like we were sending more and more um, arms to Ukraine. We we're supporting that side. And it was becoming more and more polarized. And as the locals said, Putin had invested a lot of time and money and Russian military might into it. And it was kind of this ground conflict, frozen conflict on a front line, the only one in Europe, kind of a classical ground war. Some of the foreign volunteers said they were fighting with like old World War II uh, artillery, old like Soviet rifles. I mean, it seemed very, um, very strange. And I, I wondered if it would just stay in like a perpetual frozen conflict or it would expand, but neither side seemed to be kind of backing down. It just seemed to be entrenching with each other and going for it. So the way you describe it, this sounds like the most surreal thing to be in the middle of. I mean, you have uh, people claiming to be from the community for Qaddafi and his people, and then you have you know, people with the Che Guevara flag, and you have Eastern Orthodox priests posing with camo-clad school children in front of a hammer and sickle. Um, what was the most surreal thing you saw there? Yeah, I mean, just going into the area, it, it uh you know, all I can, I don't know if you've seen like fried green tomatoes or like, it was kind of like this, the area is a coal mining area. There's these slag mountains everywhere. It's like a kind of rural area. It's almost like a Southern American town, town that time forgot, like a rural area. You could say it's like West Virginia or something, but um, yeah, I, we were there. We had, there's a huge May Day parade. Um, the whole town in Luhansk was shut down. Everyone was wearing the St. George, uh, the victory cross, the, uh, to celebrate like the uh, Soviet victory in World War II. And like you said, yeah, the, the tankies, they were pro Katerov, pro G, you know, they were, they were, you know, like I'm on the left, but it was, it was um, kind of like you see people talking online and they have all these kind of extreme opinions. Like we love G, we love Katerov, uh, and they were all there. They were, they're real people and they're supporting these areas. And um, uh, yeah, they, this is cut off from kind of all, it's an anti-globalist paradise. I mean, it's cut off from all global capital or it was, and um, just kind of like the land that time forgot with all these foreign volunteers who were all, really just interesting people and all had their kind of own reasons for coming there. And to me, it was more, you know, it was maybe more weird than like, I mean, I, I'm interested in the history of this area already. And I'm kind of like a Rusfile Sovietologist person. And um, it, there was just such a diversity of uh, ideologies, all kind of living together in this, this off the grid territory. Could you talk a little bit to this issue of uh, ultranationalists? Because it sounds like there's ultranationalists on all sides of this uh, sort of conflict on both the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. Yeah, they, um, you know, the the whole, there was a lot of Nova Russia supporters, which is kind of an outgrowth of the whole national Bolshevik thing from Dugan. And the idea was to have Crimea, to have Transnistria and kind of a, a, basically all the territory Russia controls now down through Mariupol over the Sea of Azov. That's kind of the, that's Nova Russia, little Russia. And that's what they've wanted the whole time. So, uh, you know, you have kind of, it's a mix of Soviet nostalgia. It's a mix of um, 
kind of punky, you know, like Limonov kind of punky performance art thing. You, I met different Russian people with different reasons for coming down kind of for like a Russian going down to these areas. It's like, if you're a leftist in America and you want to go down and support people on the border, you know, support like Central Americans or whatever. There was lots of Russians coming down and they're bringing aid, they're bringing humanitarian relief. I mean, the the feeling for Donbass people is strong. And then some of those people come down like a convoy for with humanitarian aid. They stay, they fall in love, they end up staying down there. You know, it, it's kind of like Moscow is equivalent to Brooklyn. You go down to this kind of backwater and you fall in love with it and you stay. And maybe you fall in love with the person. I met a playwright who um, married a one of the commanders, uh, Pavel Dreamoff, and um, they got married in St. Petersburg. They came back for the second marriage ceremony in Donbass, and someone planted a um, car bomb in his brand new car, which was his wedding gift. So he died on their wedding day, and uh, she stayed down there with his friends and family, and she just lives down there writing plays. So you met this figure by the name of Tobias, and I found him very interesting in this piece. I was wondering if you could talk about your interactions with him and also uh, why you felt that, you know, he may have been someone that was probably in the crosshairs of several countries' intelligence agencies. Yeah, Tobias was kind of the supreme, (laughs) the most tanky person I've ever met where he's, you know, he was a German guy. Um, He... uh, very charismatic and he had come to the territories a lot. He was kind of the leader of this caravan, but um, he, uh, you know, was changing shirts every day. One day it was like a Gaddafi shirt. One day it's a Kadyrov shirt. One day it's a Che shirt. One day it's a Putin, the most gentlemanly gentleman red shirt. And he's been in the, he's kind of seemed to be a anti-NATO information warrior. He ran a, um, organization in Germany called Anti-Imperialist Action. And it's there's definitely a strong German contingent um, for all, mostly kind of this anti-NATO vibe. But uh, after we left, you know, he ended up going to like Syria and meeting Bashar Assad. And, you know, he was kind of going around trying to link up these these uh, uh, dissident nations, you might call it. I, I haven't. So he's meeting with up. actual representatives from like Syria, Russia, North, North Korea. Yeah, but I don't think in a way I don't think in like a skull and dagger way. I think it's kind of like, hey, here's a guy who's from Germany. He's organizing, you know, against unipolar Western world and NATO. You know, you take who you you know whoever is going to be on your side, you take and you you meet them, and he's kind of that guy. So I don't think he was any kind of um, you know agent or anything, but I do but he think may have been he may have you know gotten well, the attention you're, you're of people. It, so he may have gotten the attention of these. Yeah, sort I think of he might have gotten because he was just going around to all the all the countries that are um, kind of in the crosshairs. So and and making a big show and he was charismatic and nice and uh but yeah his views were were hardline you know like you know kind of this stalinist anti-imperialist thing going on the tanky thing could you talk about the ways in which maybe you uh would try to push back on um some of these figures i know you would ask maybe tobias um you know what it was so anti-imperialist about supporting russia it's just another oligarchic capitalist country today, how, how would they respond to some of the pushback you gave? And what are some of the other forms of pushback you would give? 
Yeah, I mean, I I think they were all kind of in the tank where it was, you know, like arguing with a super tanky person from like, there's like a Reddit community, like Jen Zedong or whatever. There's people that are just full believers and you can't say anything to it. But I would say, yeah, of course, what's like this area is going to just end up being kind of like a Russia controlled, like Machiadora, like a, an extra state for Russia to, you know, assert its imperial dominance. And, um, but people, I think, felt, um, I think they just felt American and NATO hegemony so uh, strong and so extreme that kind of anybody or anything pushing back against that, it, whatever the compromise you have to make with whatever kind of regimes, that's, it's like almost like a rip in the fabric of some kind of like global uh, total dominance that I think they would just take whatever they can get. And I think Xi and, you know, China is the big, the big one for them um, generally. And then there's all these extra kind of sideshows, I guess you could say. Now you also met this character who, who greets you, I think, by saying, welcome, welcome to the free world. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that uh, guy is named Andre. He was with the trade union. Um, they were organizing this kind of junket, this uh, foreign supporters. So they were like the um, civil society organ that was kind of taking care of us and put us up and took us around to different things. So he was really, you know, he was really nice. And I think I got the impression that, um, you know, for the people hosting this, they know they have to kind of put on a, they know they're going to get tanky communists. So they, so they put on the tanky communist show. So it's all about, yeah, vodka and welcome to the free world. Every, here we go, comrades, you know, that's kind of, they know what kind of supporters they're getting. So they, they put on the show for the foreign dignitaries that they get. And it's, you know, it I don't know like if they fully the... believe it. You know, I, I got the feeling that, you know, like if you run a hostel, a youth hostel, you probably don't believe in the whole, you know, shots of tequila every single night and, you know, a beach bonfire, but you still host the party no matter what. So I was going to say, it sounds like you came across people too, that were uh, volunteering who kind of had an idea that, hey, not all of these people are necessarily our friends. I think you talked to one person uh, that says, we have many people here from all countries. Um, and then they point out that there are many, many Russians uh, fighting this that are not communists and they're Duganists. And right. um, I think one of them says, uh, you know, D Duganism is basically fascism. They try to pass themselves off as anarchists, uh, but we know who they are. We know who they are. So it sounds like this is like a recipe for uh, paranoia and a lot of sort of uh, cloak and dagger backstabbing. Right. I think among the foreigners who are either living there or volunteering, you know, especially the tanky foreigners, I think ideology is probably very, very important to them. So they some of the people I met, like uh, a Spanish guy, you know, they and an Indian guy named Rav, they, um, you know, they could kind of sort through the ideologies and say, like, oh, we're communist and we're not just like a Russian nationalist. We're not some kind of Duganist Eurasians, they could kind of sort through and uh, the fragmentary melange of ideologies. But I imagine a lot of people who are fighting on the front lines is probably it doesn't turn out to be a real issue. But if you're kind of this tanky information person, you're there because of ideology. They were really attuned to the um, to the different strands of different ideologies that were everywhere. 
And that was, uh, and yeah, there was little splinters and, and disagreements about all this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. The Duganist and the communist were, seemed to be at loggerheads, you know, so. And could you also speak a little bit more about this figure you mentioned earlier, uh, Gokharov? Yeah, uh, Gokharov, uh, Anton Gokharov, like I said, he was a, um, he uh, had like three degrees. He was like very handsome. There was like lots of photos of him on Instagram and online of like posing in these like military outfits with like women in like military outfits, like looking like Russian GI Joe, sexy kind of photos. So he was down there um, and he told me he was Eurasianist and he was a, um, you know, just a Russian patriot. And he was down there to bolster his career and he hoped to, um, have a, a political career. He had worked um, with some as like an information kind of warrior in Moscow, he lived in Moscow. Then he uh, lived in a couple of university cities and um, seemed to be down there to kind of uh, build a future Russian career, which seemed he was very intelligent, very well-spoken, promising. And I think there are people that go down there because they can sense um they can advance within Russian society with um, by by actually acting on their beliefs and to have this kind of notch in their belt. And that was the impression I got from him. So before we close out here, uh, this international anti-fascist uh, conference, uh, what was the vibe on that like? And, and what are your recollections of it? Yeah, so it was, I don't know, it was almost like how you'd imagine a uh, with like Yugoslavia, with like non-aligned countries. I mean, there was people from every country. There was like an African guy getting uh, Luhansk citizenship. There was, um, you know, all these cameras, kind of a local news thing to kind of bolster their international um, bona fides. So the fact that you had people from Germany and Italy and Spain and America and Canada coming down there, everyone was kind of supposed to give a speech and most of the tankies and visitors gave a speech. Um, there was a punk band from Italy called Banda Basotti there. There was like Spanish um, kind of like anti-fascist skinheads there. And so they were all kind of greeted as like friends of LPR, DPR, gave a speech of support, you know, said, we're going to fight the, the fascists. And there was a question and answer period. And, um, the leader of LPR, Igor Pranitsky, you know, talked a lot about, uh, you know, he was kind of saying, kind of triumphalist, like, oh, you know, if you're, if NATO wants to fight, um, we'll fight and we'll win, you know, we'll, we're going to, we'll destroy NATO, our tanks will be in Kiev, you know, kind of a triumphant kind of, uh, <laughs> like, uh, we're going to be good and, uh, we hate to say it, but your countries, unless they get on board, are doomed. And so he ended up, uh, that leader, Igor Plodnitsky, he ended up like losing power there and fled to Russia and was replaced. Um, but uh, the the vibe was of a kind of um, just like an international uh, information kind of war to say, we uh, we have supporters, we're going we're gonna to win, you know, kind of counter- to the uh, to the Ukrainian propaganda or whatever, so their own local kind of homegrown version of that. 
So it sounds like Planitsky, he uh, sort of j- j- just disappears back into Russia. I-, I think you say something about, you know, he probably went into some kind of witness protection program. What happens to some of the other ones? Um, it sounds like they're not as lucky. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, he was spotted like he, he disappeared and he was spotted on like some security camera at uh, at like Moscow airport, like alone with his baggage going somewhere in Russia. And that's kind of been a common thing theme where the leaders down there have been car bombed or they've gone back to Russia, often to a small town and are living in Russia. Some of them like Strelkov, you know, they're, they're reactivated in a way where they're still in this information war, but they, these territories kind of cycled through so many people. And uh, it seemed like people were disposable down there. Well, so it's kind of odd at the same time, Putin's been saying so much about, Oh, uh, we, the genocide of Donbass people, we care so much about them. There are like a lot of questions about like who was running this show. Obviously, their narrative was that all these people were killed by like Ukrainian neo-Nazis or saboteurs. Um, a lot of them ended up back in Russia. So I, I do feel the people in these territories kind of um, got the short end of the stick in a lot of ways where they knew that, you know, they could be like, quote unquote, in charge, but they didn't truly have, uh, you know, kind of autonomy over their their own region, their own life. You know, they couldn't truly be like this kind of- It sounds like they're pawns in a game. Yeah, basically. I mean, this is, yeah, it's like, we're like with Rojava in Syria, like they wanted to like truly have, be a stately with no, no foreign control. No, we're not going to have any big power tell us what to do. I think people here maybe knew that they couldn't fully exist outside of uh, the great power kind of geopolitics like they they knew who was calling the shots and it seemed to be the russians were calling the shots so then in closing uh there was one point in the article where you said that uh you found yourself thinking about something plitnitsky uh had said during the conference that sort of encapsulated all of this for you the, the sort of hyper polarized hall of mirrors nature of the ukraine conflict uh and how it was a sort of ground zero for the now globalized Western and Russian information war. What, what was it that he was talking about? He had mentioned, I guess, um, Goebbels um, from World War II. Yeah, you know, I think he was saying that truth is, uh, you know, if you repeat a lie a thousand times, it becomes truth. And uh, uh, kind of talking about the fake news bubble and saying the most dangerous thing in the world is not a lie, but a half-truth and saying we need to stand against the half-truth because that's actually the, the, the most dangerous thing. And I, you know, watching everything that's been happening over the past couple of weeks, it's like, I, that just really resonates with me because each side with their, you know, everyone's willing to kind of like, everyone's willing to spout half truths if for their side, everyone's kind of on both sides of this conflict. I, I see a lot of things that I'm like, I don't know that that doesn't seem fully right. And each side is kind of, people are willing to just eat it up if if it means if it's beneficial for their side. And uh, the information war seems to have kind of metastasized into a entirely new phase. With you know now we're living it like hour by hour with all the information coming out. And um, I don't know. I found that kind of profound what he was saying because it's like he knew 
he knew he was in an information war and he knew and he knew he knew about half truths but i guess he also was probably okay with his side telling half truths in a way even though he says he wasn't so yeah you quote him as saying uh joseph goebbels said that if you repeat a lie a thousand times it becomes truth it's easy to identify and stand against a lie but a half truth is the most dangerous thing because it contains a kernel of the real truth and i i can see why that would stay with you um Final thoughts here. What do you think the relevance of what you reported on is at this moment? And uh, have you been in contact with anyone uh, within that region uh, recently? What, what What are your thoughts on uh, where this all stands now and uh, how it all relates? Well, I mean, there's a big push uh, on their side, on, on the Donbass side. There was when I was there as well to stand with them. I mean, before I left, they said, whatever you do, don't go to Ukraine. Don't even go through Kiev on like a stopover. You'll be arrested. You'll be tortured. And there are some examples of like pro-Russian people, mostly fighters who got like pulled off the airplane in Kiev and get, you know, thrown in jail and are facing like 15 years prison. So um, there was that. And uh, then they were trying to get everyone to kind of, um, the people there, they want you to like, declare your support. They want you to, um, I remember I joined this kind of weird discussion club after I went called the Molotov club, which is like different pro LPR, DPR people all over the world. They wanted to like pay journalists to go, um, to go like report, uh, negative things among the, uh, Azov battalion and neo, neo Nazis in Eastern Ukraine. So there's, or in Western Ukraine. So there's, you know, the information war is real. And, and then the last couple of weeks, um, they've been like, Hey, will you record a video supporting DPR, LPR? I didn't do it. Most, I think of their, the people that were there kind of are pretty steadfast in their support of these regions, even though now they're kind of the, uh, the wedge Russia's using to invade Ukraine. Um, so I think, um, it's just getting more and more polarized and, you're more and more required to like take your stand on whatever side you're on and like declare it to the world and we're right and they're wrong. And I, uh, I just have been glued to the coverage of this war. And I, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I could take a full stand on either side of this conflict. It's very complicated. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on here. And it, it I, sounds like it's a real tragedy where a, a lot of, just regular people are completely caught in the crossfires. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think you just feel bad for like regular people in these areas or people like just on the other side of this contact line of this conflict who are, you know, they um, have been suffering economically for eight years. You know, there's been a lot of death, a lot of destruction and to be in this area and in this situation where maybe historically you're you think of yourself as russian or whatever but you're caught in the middle of this i mean it's it's hard to even imagine but um yeah just being in touch with them they were in touch recently and were like can you record a video of support actually that was like right before the invasion and i i ended up not recording a video and then there was the invasion and i was like oh, okay well i guess i'm glad i didn't like record a video declaring how much i support lpr dpr um even though uh, the people there, um, I, I do feel for them and they're 
like really wonderful, interesting people like living there and they're going through a lot, I'm sure, but it's hard to, you know, be sympathetic right now because they're kind of the Russian wedge. Yeah, it, it sounds like it, it's probably an awkward situation for you because I think all of us have sympathy for what is happening uh, to Ukrainians in places like Kiev right now. Uh, but, you know, you've also met these people in uh, Donbass, and it, it sounds like you have uh, some basic empathy uh, just for them because you've met them and they're, they're human beings to you. You know, you've met them flesh and blood. Right, right. Exactly. So, yeah. So we'll we'll see what happens. Let's hope for a ceasefire or truce coming up here soon. So. Well, I want to thank you again, Aaron Lake-Smith, for coming on Parallax Views. Is there any way that my listeners can keep up with your work? Yeah, I have a Substack. It's Aaron Lake Smith at Substack.com. And um, yeah, that's probably the best way. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eric Lake Smith. Now we're going to be turning our attention to the state of the free press in 2022 with Project Censors. Mickey Huff, a friend of the show who has been on a few times before. For the uninitiated, Project Censored is a non-profit media watchdog group with work spanning decades that is attempting to shine a light on the need for critical media literacy in the 21st century. With that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Project Censored's Mickey Huff. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Uh, someone that we haven't had on the show in a while, uh, but that I'm happy that we're having on now. Mickey Huff of Project Censored, the organization that tells you about the news that didn't make the news. How are you doing today, Mickey? JG, I'm doing okay uh, overall, despite that the, the world sometimes uh, seems like it's falling apart at the seams. Now is no exception here. Um, but it's always great to be in dialogue with you, have a great appreciation for the deep conversations you have, and uh, just glad to be here today to, to talk about a state, the state of our free press, state of our free press 2022. So I neglected to have you on for the State of the Free Press Project Censored book. Uh, for 2021. And I know that uh, previous iterations just went by the title censored and then the the uh, year. Uh, and each year usually has a, a sort of theme. I remember uh, censored 2019 was sort of about the fake news invasion. Uh, censored 2020 was about the sort of hall of mirrors. Yep. Uh, there it is. Through the looking uh, glass. <laughs> yes. Through the looking glass, the Alice in Wonderland world of uh, fake news and and media malfeasance. So what's the theme of State of the Press 2022? So Andy Lee Roth and I are um, Associate Director of Project Censored, and I've, um, gosh, Andy and I have done maybe 10 books together now. It's time time flies when you're, when you're following media lies uh, <laughs> and censorship. Um, but Andy and I kind of rebranded the annual book. The book used to be Runaway, um, meaning it was really long and you know, if you go back and look a few years ago at our 40th anniversary book, um, it was nearly 500 pages. 
And so Andy and I, that's a lot of work every year and we do other things, right? And, you know, I'm a professor and I have, apparently I have a few other books out um, around the, you know, on top of this, we finished a film. So we've been, and we do the weekly radio show, the Project Censored show. So if your your folks are interested, they can go to projectcensored.org and they can find a lot about what we do for free. Uh, see all the top stories, films, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but we decided that, well, we also started a publishing imprint. So we're now the censored press. We have five books planned. This is the first one uh, on our press in partnership with our former publisher, Seven Stories Press. Um, so we have a dual, you know, we're an imprint working with Seven Stories Press. And we decided um, we wanted to really kind of rebrand the project through the lens of critical media literacy, news literacy education, and specifically what we do every year is we're kind of monitoring the state of the so-called free press. So we wanted to remind people like what we were doing with the censored 2017, 18, 19 and the catchy subtitles and that kind of thing. That was a lot of fun, but it's also the case that people, people that knew about the project, we were founded in 1976. So people that followed and knew about the project for a while kind of got what we were doing. But people that were newer to the project or younger people, they're like, what's this book? What's this book? What's that book? Are these connected? These are the same people. Um, so we wanted to simplify this, the branding of it. And what we do is we analyze, like you see, we have this, the news that doesn't make the news and we analyze why. Um, so the State of the Free Press 2021, we had Matt Taibbi do a stellar forward for us. Um, and we really broke the book. You know, we, we, we boiled it, we distilled the book down to what we do. We have, we have a, an intro and a foreword that focuses on what's happening with the state of the press, particularly in the West and the US. That's our focus, right? Is US press primarily. Uh, that's how it's been for 45 years. That's what we look at. We don't ignore everything else, but that's our prime focus. Um, and then we look at the top censored or underreported stories. We have several hundred, a couple, two to 300 a year that come from 20 some colleges that are researched. You know, if you wanna get into the details of how that works, I can do that, but that's the first chapter. And then we have a 28 judges that go and we rank those stories in terms of significance and importance. They're vetted at least four or five times for corporate coverage, for accuracy, et cetera. So that by the time we get to the list, it's, it's pretty well been fact-checked and we, it's been ascertained that by the time the book was published, these stories weren't being picked up or treated seriously by the corporate so-called mainstream media in the United States. We then focus on a deja vu censored. Steve Masick, uh, a media scholar, comes and looks at what happened to previous stories, right? Like a big role of journalism is supposed to follow up. What happened to that story? New York Times, we broke a story about X, so we covered it. And then they don't do anything with it for two years. That's not helpful to the public. So the Deja Vu chapter takes certain censored stories and follows them up. Did they get picked up? Has there, have there been developments or do they languish in obscurity? We still do the pithy TH and sort of um, tongue in cheek junk food news chapter that looks at the worst of sensationalist journal journalism, stuff that is on the news, but why? You know, I don't need to know why you know, Yee and Pete Davidson are at odds over Kim Kardashian and whatever some dumb video is with his decapitated head and all this business. But this is like, this is stuff that gets treated as news. And the, the line between news, infotainment, nonsense, it's just been blurred even further as social media has really rivaled and in some cases overtaken the role of legacy media for news reporting, which has pluses and minuses. And the junk food news really stresses the minuses. 
Um, then we have the news abuse chapter. Robin Anderson does that for us, writes for FAIR from Fordham, um, a great media scholar. That's the propaganda analysis chapter. News abuse is about propaganda. Major news outlets that cover things in a that are newsworthy, but with a spin, a frame, a slant, right? Like the news media isn't not covering the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but the New York Times and the Western press in particular, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, they all have a real frame that they're looking at it through a lens and anything outside of the lens, they just act as if it's illegitimate. That's not true. And of course, you know that and your viewers and listeners are aware of that. Um, and then we have the solutions chapter on media democracy in action. Who are some great journalists? What are some great organizations? What are they doing? Why should you know about them? And we really want to promote the idea of, of, of First Amendment free press principles and people doing them that aren't just legacy types, that aren't just the top name brands or top bloggers or podcasters or whatever. These are um, tried and true, tested, even if new, tested enough that they're really offering something to the palette of people that really want to look for serious news, serious journalism, serious free press activism, First Amendment activism, they can find that. And we catalog that every year. So long-winded answer to your question, uh, JG, but State of the Free Press each year then is going to encapsulate all of this into this 300-page book that's under $20, um, nearly half of which is online for free. I guess we're kind of bad marketers that way. Um, we're a nonprofit, you know, so uh, this is a labor of love and sometimes those involve self-exploitation. Um, but, you know, we really do what we do. We do a lot with a little. And so people that want to subscribe to us, $5, $10 a month. I mean, this goes a long way for us working with students, with interns. Um, and the whole role here is for us to try to educate the next generation of intrepid journalists. And that's what we hope to do. So we're in a pretty turbulent time right now. And, and I've noticed that people will rightfully point out uh, that there are other countries uh, that really don't have uh, much freedom of the press. And a lot of people will use that to say, well, we have the freest press here in the US. We, we cover everything. And I can understand why people maybe uh, Phil, oh, well, we're, we're not as bad as some countries uh, have been with the press. How do you sort of deal with that with uh, students um, right now? Because I think there is a problem with, uh, you know, corporate media and a lack of independent news in the United States. Yeah, there's a real lack of diversity in, in uh, regarding the frames through which news is filtered, right? And that we're kind of invoking uh, Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent. Um, the propaganda model, right? The, who owns the media, how advertising money factors into to, to framing what it is, uh, what is and isn't permissible, um, what's newsworthy, who's newsworthy, um, who are worthy and unworthy victims uh, in news coverage, who, who's, who's the expert, who's not, um, what does the public think? Do we ever get to hear from the public? So um, these are a lot of factors that go into to news reporting and what also sort of either makes or breaks what we consider as good quality public interest journalism. But you're right. The idea that the U.S. press isn't the worst is true. Um, the Press Freedom Index ranks us around 45th, 44th, somewhere around there uh, in, in terms of free press uh, around the world. So that's not the worst. But it's definitely not we're number one. 
Um, and so what we do, what we would, what we take with students is students will say, well, look, I watch CNN and then I watch Fox. So I get both sides. Well, you're getting both sides of propaganda that's basically catered from corporate interests that back two parties, right? And so that's not what we mean by diversity of viewpoint. And those are top-down managed news commentators. They, it's not necessarily the same as investigative reporting. And I was going to say real quick, I, I think the thing that I hear a lot, and I especially heard this uh, when I was in university a few years ago, which was, well, you know, there's other countries with uh, state-owned press outlets, and, and we have uh, these non-state-owned press outlets that aren't beholden to the government, uh, but corporate media itself can lead to forms of uh, censorship, or at the very least, self-censorship, effective censorship. In entirely, and that's what we focus on, is we don't call it mainstream media either. Six corporations control about 90% of that media, and now we have about five tech companies that are tacked on top of that as social media aggregators that masquerade as news outlets even though they don't want to be seen as news outlets for regulatory purposes. Um, so you're very right. Very quickly, the state-owned one is actually fairly relevant right now because Russia today, RT America was just shut down, just shut down uh, over the Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Vladimir Putin's gross violation of international law, violation of human rights. Um, why we should recognize that as such is because in the United States, we're no strangers to invasions and violations of uh, international law. Interesting that the corporate media has recently discovered international law and uh, humanitarian uh, issues because now Russia's doing it in Ukraine. Um, notice that all happens in an historical vacuum, nothing about US NATO, nothing going back to the 90s, 97, the whole, the provocation comments from various Westerners and US NATO allies. Um, not gonna dig into that rabbit hole right now, but, but but one of the things, and Chris Hedges, actually right now, as we were talking, Benar Mahawash at Mint Press News is talking to Lee Camp, formerly of Redacted Tonight, and Chris Hedges, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, both of whom were at RT America because they couldn't be other places. So this state, again, when you watch Russia today, you know what it is. But that doesn't mean that it's all false because not all propaganda is false. It might be half true, partially true, or it might be entirely true in some cases, but you're not going to hear the anti-war, anti-imperialism, anti-capitalist analysis that you heard on that station. Now, whether or not RT had other motives to uh, sow dissent and what have you in the U.S., that's another question. To suggest that that wasn't filling a hole in the U.S. media ecosystem is nonsensical. Um, it was feeding uh, a really serious, it was filling an important gap in major US media coverage. And what, by the way, RT journalists were being forced to register as foreign agents with the Justice Department or State Department, remember? Did we do that to the BBC? Did we do that to other outlets? Did we do it? What about NPR? Isn't that state, state media? The double standards are extraordinary and ridiculous. What we should be championing is, and well, why we teach critical media literacy, is that I have confidence that when, when my students watch Russian TV or Iranian press TV, they know where it's coming from. They understand that there's a message, there's an agenda, and they know that they have to put what they're seeing and hearing there in context with a lot of other outlets that are giving different views and perspectives, and they know they have to fact check between them all, right? So we, 
at the project, and I think we generally as educators, we really need to trust that our students aren't idiots. Um, we need to trust that the public can tell the difference between fact and fiction when they're given the opportunity to see different views, different um, takes on the facts. When, when something's presented as a fact, you have to transparently source it as such, right? And unfortunately, now that's the state media part of it. The corporate media part of it is far more nefarious or insidious or pernicious um, for those playing Wordle or whatever. Uh, oh, those words are too long, I guess. But nevertheless, um, corporate media uh, sort of presents itself as balanced and presents itself as objective, presents itself as the professional industry perspective of news. Well, that's partially true, but it's also um, a branding technique so that their frame becomes invisible so that people no longer question what they're hearing from those outlets. And if one's confirmation bias happens to coincide with the editorial board at the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or MSNBC or CNN or Fox or wherever, viewers, listeners, readers are less likely to challenge it, to question it and delve more deeply into the stories. What we do at Project Censored is we highlight the independent and alternative journalists and press that go deeper into those stories that the corporate media either won't touch because it offends their owners, shareholders, advertisers, it's too controversial, they're getting threats of boycotts, um, what have you, or if they actually do cover a story, they, they, they spin it, they slant it, right? And we have a lot of stories in our book every year that people will say, you know, I heard about that story and it, they did cover that at CNN. And we'll say, okay, how? How did they cover it? And then we'll pick a couple stories out and we'll say, but, but did they cover this angle? Did they cover these five other facts? And then someone might come back and say, huh, no, I, they didn't. Maybe they didn't know. Okay, so here's where we get into the real, <laughs> into the real weeds in media literacy land. Was this a mistake? Misinformation, which is the new fake news buzzword, misinformation is mistaken information that we pass along in good faith. We may not realize we don't know something. And of course, it's hard to know things that we don't know. That's the challenge. So we give the benefit of the doubt that some of these outlets don't realize that they, they don't know everything. But this information is, well, that's the insidious part. This is the part where they know they're not asking all the questions. They know they're not following up on questioning. They know they're blurring. You see a picture of Zelensky in the Ukraine or, or uh, you know, a Ukraine general or someone, and they blur out the neo-Nazi that's in the background. They blur out the face of a very nefarious character because it doesn't support the narrative of free democratic Ukraine. Um, you know, because the historical reality of, of those issues, as you well know, and your guests always point out, quite adroitly, um, reality is complicated sometimes. And for the corporate news media to get into the weeds on that, it's less eyeball catching, it's less sexy, it's less sensationalist. And also it means you're not gonna line people up to put blue and gold in their, in their Facebook and Instagram commentary as their, their activism. You know, and so it, they are there to produce loyal audiences as ideologues. And the independent alternative press isn't necessarily objective either, but they wear those biases openly 
and they transparently factually source the things they're claiming to counter the propaganda that floods the spectrum through corporate media. And that's at Project Censored. We want to reintroduce these topics and stories to a more general audience that may not read um, some of the sources that we highlight every year. So it's kind of another go around of maybe you missed this, but here's another chance to check out the great work of X. So before we get into how Project Censored uh, collates these stories, I think it's interesting. I was just reading um, an article from this past Friday that was in uh, the Wall Street Journal, which actually, you know, to its credit, uh, really delved into the issue of NATO expansion and uh, the role that may have played in fostering this, this current conflict, or at least poking the bear a little bit. And it's interesting to me because you have that on one end, and then you turn on MSNBC and, and, and Rachel Maddow is having Hillary Clinton on. Uh, when we get into this issue of, uh, you know, the sort of TV press, the, the networks like MSNBC and CNN, I think we really see in full force this problem of uh, infotainment. And I think at one point in the book, uh, you have a chapter on humilitainment. Uh, could you talk a little bit about these problems? Yeah, actually, and you know, again, aptly put, and you know, you're you're an educated person who is very steeped in political science and theory and history and journalism. So you've taken time to understand those landscapes, right? Um, and no offense, but um, you know, this wouldn't make you a genius per se, right? And what, what I'm saying is the same thing about myself and the same thing about Project Censored. We don't have like some um, secret source of information, or we don't have some magic portal to abstract reality that the truth is this. I'm not a genius. I just simply have followed patterns for long enough. And so you begin to recognize them when you see them. When you see the former generals and CIA spooks line up as commentators over at Fox or at CNN, you know, you and I put on that critical thinking cap, right? We kick the dunce cap off for a moment and put on the critical thinking cap. And we're like, I'll bet you're not telling me everything, former spokesperson for Raytheon or the Pentagon or wherever. Um, and so that makes us different in some, than some in the general public. But what we do at Project Censored is we think the general public can put that hat on too. We think it's possible. And another way that we're able to help do that is when we look in the junk food news chapter, these are things that people are usually very aware of, right? They might not know what Canary Mission is. Maybe we'll talk about that in a little while as one of the top stories. But I bet they know what the latest nonsense is about Gorilla Glue Girl on TikTok or during the pandemic on Netflix when uh, Tiger King was all the rage. Right. I bet they knew all kinds of things about that. And I bet they were all up in arms or they knew all about Cardi B and the WAP song, the WAP song. Um, I bet they were all into that. Right. And they knew what was going on on those fronts. Well, there's and, a and by the way, I was going to say it's OK if people enjoy their entertainment. But when yes. that's like yes. the news, you know, that becomes a problem. That's where we're drawing the line, JG. And I'm really glad you pointed that out. I look, I, I watch TikTok. I look at Twitter and Instagram and I'm on Facebook and the project is on some of these things. And we always joke, follow us before we're, you know, follow us on your digital tethering device before we're deplatformed, you know, ha ha ha. 
But look, that is where the action is. And that is where things are happening. So just like people maybe want to watch football, baseball, sports, whatever, you know, I mean, I may think it's a nonsensical waste of time. You know, George Orwell might think people are filling their minds with it, you know, across the horizon, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But look, guilty pleasures aside, the problem is, is when people begin conflating this as infotainment as actual news, right? What's happening with Kanye and Pete Davidson is important news that I need to know about. Humilitainment is sort of like a category of that kind of junk news, right? We've covered this kind of stuff before, these different categories like yo-yo news, you know, how something, the Dow Jones is up, it's down, it's up, it's down. Political races, it's like a horse race, candidates. So-and-so's ahead by 3%, they're behind by 2%, they're ahead by 3%. And the whole coverage is like zzz, back and forth, to and fro. No substantive coverage about the real issues, the challenges, et cetera, et cetera. So very problematic. Humilitainment is just another one of these things. And in fact, I can tell you from the, the book, um, humilitainment is a word coined by media scholar Brad Waite and Sarah Booker. Goes back to 2005, and it refers to entertainment that capitalizes on someone else's humiliation. This term is often used in conjunction with schadenfreude, a German compound word that translates to harm joy and describes finding joy in others' pain, right? Humilitainment often features as junk food news. It's become common theme in reality television programming like Survivor, Big Brother, 16 and Pregnant, 90 Day Fiance, Jersey Shore, you know, decades old programs like Candid Camera or America's Funniest Home Videos. They present fails, right? Uh, like Fail Army, those kind of internet channels that result in viewers literally laughing at a complete stranger's pain or misfortune, right? And this is the, this is the whole genre of entertainment, but it bleeds its way into the news. Those absurd things that we see covered on the news or the Darwin Awards or whatever, where we're like, oh my God, these people, how dumb could they be? And we all get a collective sort of chuckle at how we're, but we are never that stupid. Um, I mean, thank goodness, JG, there's not cameras following us around all day, or just some of the day, uh, not all day, because, you know, I mean, I know that if I would, when I was growing as a, up as a kid and we were documenting all the stuff we did on social media, if it existed then, I mean, we'd all have kinds of problems here. So this is a really unfortunate trend that's very popular because it allows people to feel superior to other people. And so when we take a look at humilitainment and we apply it to the news, it has a similar effect. Thank God I'm not in Ukraine. Uh, my, thank goodness that we don't live next to a tin, tin uh, hat dictator like Vladimir Putin. Um, we, we are able to translate that schadenfreude into ways that it really kind of colors or influences what we otherwise would think is sophisticated political analysis that at the end is more like playground politics. And cable news, as, as you mentioned earlier, cable news is notorious for this kind of gotcha chair throwing nonsense that even comedians like Jon Stewart called out ages ago. You may remember what that show Crossfire on CNN um, where you had like from the pretend right, I'm or somewhere in the corporate right, I'm Bob Novak. And from the absolute not left neoliberal center, I'm Michael Kinsley. Um, but they play on TV and we're going to box it out. Well, once upon a time, you know, uh, John Stewart went on there and just said, he literally said, you know, 
you guys are dicks. Now, I, mean, I guess we can say that because we're not FCC regulated here. Um, you're hurting people by the way you nonsensically and sensationalistically distill everything into a fight rather than an intellectual argument. And, and that's become more true than ever with, uh, with the advent of social media. It's sort of like, it's like bottom feeders paradise, if you will. Anybody who's been on social media more than five minutes to look at the comment sections of even real news sites, we'll see. It descends into complete pablum and violent nonsense in short order. That is not journalism. Journalism is not only the antithesis of that, it's the antidote to that. And that's why when we talk about the state of the free, free press, we want to be critical of corporate media, but affirmative. When the corporate media gets a story and does a good coverage, does something right, we want to say, why can't we do more of that? Why can't we get more of that kind of coverage? You've got the resources. You clearly know what it looks like. So why not do more of it? But we're also critical when they don't do it, and we affirm the alternative or independent sources that on any slow news day, the corporate press should, they should pick up those stories. They should want to know, for example, and I know we can uh, go into a couple of these if you want, but why won't the corporate media tell people how prescription drug costs are set to become a leading cause of death for elderly Americans? Why will, why will they not talk about journalists investigating financial crimes who are threatened by global elites? Why don't they talk about the historic wave of wildcat strikes for worker rights? Why is corporate media coverage of workers always negative? Yeah, it's it's wild to me, you know, with the wildcat strikes. One of the only people I know that has really covered these historic wave of strikes is uh, I'm blanking on his name, but uh, Mike from uh, Payday Report. Well, Payday actually Report. from Pittsburgh. We love Mike of Payday Report. Done some of the best reporting about it. In fact, we highlight that. Mike does fantastic. Mike Elk. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Elk. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Andy and Steve Mason and I, we love uh, the work that they're doing. And that's exactly the kind of work, by the way, that we'll put in a media democracy in action chapter, right? Is we're like, unfortunately, you know, the Wall Street Journal will tell you all about Wall Street and the hedge funds and investments and interest rates and the Fed. But when it comes to real labor issues, they, if they cover them, there's always a huge negative spin or a bias. You know, and, and take a look, you know, don't forget Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. So don't be surprised when their editorial board talks about how billionaires are already paying their fair share and billionaires aren't the problem. Tax cheats in the working. You know, again, if you are a media literate, even to an nth degree, and you know who owns the Washington Post, you'll figure out in short order why they don't cover certain things. So before we close, I had two more things I wanted to cover. First, uh, one of the, we, we were going to cover one particular story uh, that um, made it into this edition of the State of the Free Press, Project Censored State of the Free Press. And that's the story of Canary Mission. So maybe let my listeners know what that is. And then after that, I'd like you to maybe explain how do you make that inclusion of that story into State of the Free Press? What's the process for yeah. uh, selecting a story? Yeah, like it basically the curriculum, the pedagogy, and so on. So that's a great note to end on. So but before that, Let's, as you suggested, take a look at an example of one of the stories that was in this year's top 25 at number six. These are voted on by our national judges. I'll explain that in a moment. This story is called Canary Mission Blacklists Pro-Palestinian Activists Chilling Free Speech Rights. This was researched by Allison Ford at Sonoma State University, a faculty evaluator, the student Miranda Morgan. 
The actual journalistic uh, examples were from The Intercept and The Nation here. And again, by the way, let's be clear. Because we highlight The Nation or The Intercept in this story doesn't mean everything at The Nation or everything at The Intercept is beyond critique. That is not what we're saying. It's each source, each story at a time. Let's take a look at it. And that takes time. And that's what it means to be critically media literate. So this story, um, uh, it really focuses on what's called the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, or BDS. Some of your listeners or viewers may be aware of what that is. Um, that's a movement that is trying to put financial pressure on the government, on the state of Israel, by divesting or eliminating support for the state of Israel or other Israeli businesses that directly profit or promote apartheid politics in Palestine, the illegal occupation of Palestine. This is not an anti-Semitic critique of the state of Israel, the Jewish people. This is not a negative critique of Judaism as a faith or a belief. It is a political, analytical view that what the state of Israel is doing and promoting and carrying out with the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, committing acts of violence and atrocity, shelling and bombings, killing innocent Palestinian people um, in Gaza and the West Bank and other places in what amounts to the largest open air prison in the world. So boycott divestment sanctions is an organization, is not, it's, it's a loose group of activists that wanna do, they wanna put pressure on Israel to stop apartheid politics. Canary Mission is an anonymously run website established six years ago, seven years ago, that seeks to publicly discredit critics of Israel as, quote, terrorists and anti-Semites. Canary Mission is difficult to describe as anything other than a blacklist. One activist told The Intercept that Canary Mission has proven very powerful in silencing people and making them think free speech is not their right. It instills a powerful sense of fear and paranoia. It censors and promotes a chilling effect and self-censoring effect among anybody that wants to speak out on this topic. I and, know and it's also specifically in a lot of cases targeting Palestinians, Palestinian Americans. Absolutely, absolutely, especially Palestinian academics and journalists, especially quelling academic freedom. And we've written about this a lot, about how this has chilled academic freedom. Uh, how Zoom and YouTube have actually, during the pandemic, how we've gone remote in a lot of ways. Um, Zoom has actually censored Palestinian activist presentations at a university where, where scholars are debating these issues in an academic environment, right? These tech companies and universities and even um, the, uh, the academic freedom committees at places like NYU have been censored. Uh, this is absolutely riveting, uh, JG, that this is going on. And, you know, again, you know, it's interesting that a lot of people on the right decry cancel culture, um, you know, as alleged progressive intolerance. And that's another topic that you and I don't have time to get into today. But when it comes to Israel-Palestine, full-blown authoritarian coercion, like blacklisting carried out by Canary Mission, is well entrenched. Or, or for example, the, not to interrupt you, but or for yeah. example, uh, this this uh, woman who worked for AP after she graduated from university, Emily Wilder. I mean, she was part of Jewish Voice for Peace, and it was these students at her university that were very much on the right and, and involved with young Republicans that ended up costing her a job merely because she worked with Jewish Voice for Peace. So, you know, they talk about cancel culture. That, to me, is it. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell, man. And I got to agree with you and say, 
you know, like Nora Barris Friedman wrote a book on this, a uh, great journalist that uh, used to be KPFA, was a board member of ours, is on our editorial board, writes for Electronic um, Intifada, uh, does really brilliant reporting on this. Manar Mahalish at Mint Press News, you know, does really good work on, on these issues. Those people have been targeted. People that are my friends have been blacklisted and targeted. Professional, professors, journalists, sociologists, not just activists in the street activists, but I'm talking about public intellectuals, people that are not anti-Semitic, people that are very clear about what's happening in Palestine and why it needs attention. Like I'm saying, what's happening in Ukraine right now is absolutely atrocious. It is a humanitarian nightmare. Where is the outrage on par in corporate media with what's happening in Palestine, Yemen, Syria, Libya? Where is it? Where is this? Where is this? I mean, again, I'm nothing, it's not either or, it's both and. I can walk and chew gum at the same time. I can say Putin is an oligarchic thug and still call out our own oligarchic thugs. Um, in other words, let's not have a double standard here. One standard will do just fine, George Carlin quipped once upon a time. Um, we've got to be consistent in this kind of critique, and that is actually what it means to be critically media literate as well, which is part of our curriculum and pedagogy, and that's what you wanted to kind of close on. So if you go to projectcensored.org, you can get access to our, our books, our stories, our curriculum, our films, our weekly radio show, the Project Centered show that Eleanor Goldfield is now uh, hosting with co-hosting with me. And she does fantastic work. Her film, Hard Road of Hope, and the great work she does as an independent journalist is remarkable. Uh, again, I'm really privileged to work with so many, so many talented independent journalists and, and scholars. So it's it's this is what we do at Project Centered, this network. So this curriculum is we take into the classroom is we have students look at independent alternative media. We've got a list of independent news sources at our website. It's categorized. It is not meant to be exhaustive. Might be exhausting. <laughs> it's not exhaustive. There are more sites that aren't there. And it doesn't mean that those sites are just the truth all the time. It is, however, a, a place where students can dip their foot in the pool, so to speak, right? A lot of people grow up on media, and so they only know the major sources or what their families or social circles know about. So we introduce them to independent alternative media. We describe and explain what corporate media establishment legacy media is and why it isn't mainstream. And we begin talking about, well, what is ethical journalism? What does that, you know, uh, Danielle McLean from the Society of Professional Journalists wrote our foreword this year. Um, and uh, last year, in our Media Democracy in Action chapter, we had the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics reprinted. And I just really quickly wanted to say, this is what we teach the project. Journalists are supposed to seek truth and report it. They're supposed to minimize harm, act independently, and be accountable and transparent. So this is all part of our educational curriculum. We have an assignment, and by the way, students do this with junk food news, news abuse propaganda, media democracy in action. These can all be research projects for students. The validated independent news assignment, right? The validated independent news stories, VINs. Andy Roth and Steve Masick and some interns each year now, they collate this, uh, the Project Censored Campus Affiliate Program that we started over 10 years ago. And this is where faculty and students research and vet independent news stories, search academic databases for corporate coverage, 
If a story has been covered and the major points are covered, then that story is off the list. It doesn't get submitted to the ballot. But if the story is significant in its impact and its focus and to societal and public interest, if it's factually vetted and transparently sourced, if it's not being covered in corporate media at all, or if it is, it's not being covered accurately, it gets put on the ballot. Then each year in April, we collect those stories and our judges, 28 to 30 judges, professors, academics, journalists, et cetera, we go through and we all look at these stories and we start ranking them. We look for other coverage. Has they have they been have that gotten coverage since they were submitted? And it kind of goes through this process. And then there's a vote and it goes down to from a 200 stories. And by the way, when these stories come in, Andy and I and others, if we see they have corporate coverage or we see there's a problem with them, even if they're otherwise good stories, they get kicked off the ballot, right? So we'll have a couple hundred stories distilled down to 75 or 100. Then that gets distilled down to 35. Then it goes through another whole round of vetting and research. And then it gets down to the top 25 and we revet them all again. And if anything gets covered, covered, it gets kicked out and something else gets moved in its place. It's not the be all end all, but we do work with random length news and the, the, um, the independent newspapers association, the alternative newspapers. And then they put together the top 10 list that goes out to the weeklies, right? The city papers, usually a couple dozen a year. And so we usually get front page coverage in the alternative independent weekly in a city, right? Where say the San Francisco Chronicle won't touch these stories at all, but the East Bay Express or what used to be the Guardian will cover those stories. The LA Times won't run the story, but Random Length News in Long Beach and San Pedro will run the stories, right? And so it's a real-time exercise where students are actually researching, vetting, and then they get published in this way in our book, on our website, projectcensored.org, and through these publications. And in fact, this year, JG, Salon picked up a, an excerpt of our junk food news chapter. So several of my faculty at Diablo Valley College that I work with and students are now published at Salon. So it's a great vehicle for students to build their resume, to build experience, and to learn about the importance of a free press by actually becoming critically media literate, becoming significantly literate media citizens, and actually contributing to our information ecosystem in productive ways. Real quick in closing, too, I, I enjoyed the media democracy in action uh, chapter a lot this year especially because you include voices like uh, John K. Wilson, who's been on my show, and also uh, the great Sonali of Rising oh. Up with Sonali, who, for people that don't know, she's a big influence on this show. A lot of my template comes from her own uh, sort of and, template. And she is the Yes Magazine now, Solutions Journalism. So if you want to follow Sonali Kohakter's work, you can go find it at Yes Magazine now. They do a lot of great work, and I've, it was an honor to have her in here, and we've been on her program, and it, great example of what we think public interest journalism from a diverse spectrum of perspective looks like. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think there's things that I, I know John K. Wilson and I, and probably also you, uh, he, he has some different views on the fairness doctrine than we do. Sonali probably has different views. So I think you really do provide uh, diverse voices that don't agree on everything. And that's absolutely what we should be modeling. I think John Wilson is brilliant. Uh, he's, he writes over an academe blog. Uh, he is a brilliant analyst and scholar. Um, and But you're right. We don't have to agree on everything. I can name several things where Sonali and I don't agree. That's not the point. 
here's our new book with Nolan Higdon. The point is, is learning how to agree to disagree where you have so many other things in common. We need to be building bridges, not walls. We need to acknowledge that there is a thing called debate. There are nuanced views across the spectrum where there are a lot of gray areas, the gray zone, for example, right? Uh, that kind of journalism. So I, I'm glad that you picked up on that. And look, the great work of people at the Critical Media Project, um, Center for Freedom and Media, uh, again, just really good things here. And we, we feature these every year. Um, and it's just a handful, right? And Andy and I are putting the book together right now for next year. So with November, December this year, you're going to see State of the Free Press 2023. That is a look back, right? It's like an almanac, but it prepares you for the coming year so that you can more critically and independently see media in real time based on what we think are some of the best practices and the biggest challenges we faced from the previous year. Well, I want to thank you again, Mickey Huff. Everyone can follow your work at projectcensored.org. And also everyone should listen to the Project Censored radio program. Thanks so much, JG Michael. It's always a pleasure to be here on Parallax Views. Keep up the stellar work that you do. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. As always, if you support the work I do here, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And your support is what will keep this show going. This is Independent News Media in Action. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.